Morning, church. Have you ever made big decisions in life that you regretted later on? Decisions that initially you thought were wise, uh, well-planned, and well-informed, but eventually resulting in disappointment because it did not turn out the way you hoped for. Well, I have, and I'm sure in retrospect, most, if not all of us, somehow made a bad decision or wrong decision in the past. You see, if there's one thing about decision-making that we can all agree on, it's probably this. We want to make wise decisions. Decisions that are well thought out, decisions that are well planned, decisions we can call smart. We do this not simply because we don't want to be branded foolish, but mainly out of our desire to succeed and earn the respect of others. And so as we continue with our sermon series on David, we've come to the point of his life in self-exile after a sequence of events that led him once more to make tough and life-altering decisions on what to do next as King Saul relentlessly pursues him. In today's passage, we will see David once more leave the land of Judah to seek refuge in the land of the Philistines, specifically where a king named Achish reigns. He went to Gath, David went to Gath, and made it his sanctuary city, if you will. Now, was it a smart decision? It seems so after you read the passage. However, let's find out where this eventually leads him and see if it was indeed a smart one. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 27. We will read the entire chapter. It says, but David thought to himself, one of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. And then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. So David and 600 men with him left and went over to Achish, son of Maok, king of Gath. David and his men settled in Gath with Achish. Each man had his family with him, and David had its two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmen, the widow of Nabal. When Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. And then David said to Achish, if I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be assigned to me in one of the country towns that I may live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So on that day, Achish gave him Ziklag, and it has belonged to the kings of Judah ever since. David lived in the Philistine territory a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. From ancient times, these people had lived in the land extending to Shur and Egypt. Whenever David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or woman alive, but took sheep and cattle donkeys and camels and clothes. And then he returned to Achish. When Achish asked, where did you go raiding today? David would say against the Negev of Judah or against the Negev of Jeramil or against the Negev of the Kenites. He did not leave a man or woman alive to be brought to Gath for he thought 
they might inform us on us and say, this is what David did. And such was his practice as long as he lived in the Philistine territory. Achish trusted David and said to himself, he has become so obnoxious to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant for life. So from doing the right things the right way, as we learned from last week's sermon on chapter 24, let's review a little further back on what David went through to give us a clearer picture of how and what led him to make these decisions found in our passage. In chapter 18, you may recall how King Saul's insecurity developed when the Israelites would celebrate David's victory Dancing to the song with the lyrics, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Now Saul's insecurity led to his hatred of David and so he planned on killing David. In chapter 21, David flees from Saul and goes to Gath. That's the first time he went there. By himself, alone in the enemy's territory. And there, David, if you recall, pretends to be insane before the man of King Achish. And so he was spared and left Gath to escape unharmed. In chapter 22, he escapes to a cave. And there he finds comfort when a band of discontented and distressed Israelite outlaws joined him and made him their commander. After this, a prophet by the name of Gad served David and gave him guidance on what to do and where to go next. Now, as David continues to avoid Saul, Saul would continue to pursue him to take his life. And then in last week's sermon, chapter 24, as Saul continues to pursue David, David spares Saul's life inside the cave when he had the perfect chance to kill him. Indeed, David was doing the right things in the right way. Now, scripture has an unbiased way of revealing to us lessons in life from biblical characters we admire. Not only can we learn from the right things biblical characters like David lived out, we can also learn from their mistakes. And this passage is an example of that. When I read this passage for the first time since I was told to preach on it, I felt like, is there anything here to glean at all? Well, true enough, after asking God's help and meditating on the passage, I discovered that there's more than meets the eye in this story. David's decisions here would eventually put him in deeper trouble and dilemma. And so I've concluded it was unwise or to be blunt about it, foolish of him. Later on, as I conclude the sermon, I will reveal to you why. We can surely learn from David's mistakes, so I submit to you three factors that I saw in the passage that led to his folly. I call them factors to David's folly. The first factor is that doubt takes over difficulty. Doubt takes over difficulty. So the first three verses of the passage reveal this first factor. It begins with David telling himself a grim conclusion of what he thinks will eventually happen to him as Saul relentlessly goes after him. One of these days, he said, I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. 
Now, is that the David we knew from the preceding chapters? Where's the optimism here? Where's the faith in God's promises? I find it hard to believe that after all he has been through, David begins to doubt God's promises. Doubt took over and led him to make a foolish decision. He said to himself, listen to this, the best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines and then Saul will give up searching for me and I will slip out of his hand. Hmm. Makes practical sense. Go to the enemy's territory, seek refuge there, and that will prevent Saul from chasing him. Little did he know, he just started digging himself into a pit of trouble ahead, and he will soon find out what it is. Friends, there's something about difficulty or challenges in life that somehow lead us to doubt God's goodness and plan for us. Constant difficulty seems to have the power to instill doubt in our hearts and even override our past victories. Notice how the progression happens in David's case. It begins with the nonstop pressure for David running away from Saul. Eventually, David gives in to doubt. He doubted God's promise. Now that doubt and unbelief has taken over, he makes an impulsive decision to seek refuge in the enemy's territory. Take note that instead of consulting the prophet, the prophet Gad, who was already serving him at this point, he never did. Also, if you're familiar with David's Psalms, it is surprising that he went ahead of God when he made these decisions. However, his impulsiveness in this situation did not match his contemplations in the Psalms. If you'll think about what lesson can be gleaned here, it is simply this. Hastily made decisions lead to more trouble and regret. I can tell you another biblical character by the name of Esau as a classic biblical case for this. I'm sure you've heard about his story in Genesis 25. Esau traded his birthright for some bread and bowl of soup. Jacob ended up gaining that birthright deceptively by making Esau swear an oath. Now, when a person like Esau is led by their fleshly impulses, they tend to give in to temptations of their own sinful nature. Esau disregarded the riches he possessed with his birthright because he chose to surrender to his appetites. In David's case, he chose to surrender to his doubts. So let me ask you this, how do you deal with constant difficulty? Do you begin to doubt and get pressured to make hasty decisions without seeking God's advice in prayer? You see, by nature, we always prefer or want an easy way out of any difficult situation in life. The illustration I could think of contemporary is perhaps people going through financial difficulty are the most vulnerable to make hasty decisions when it comes to finding solutions to their finances. They could easily fall into the trap of getting more debt as a temporary fix, but don't realize later on how it will pile up to more financial obligations. You know, my, my parents, before they came to Christ, my dad's business went down so badly 
the banks and some friends of his offered to lend him funds to help him recover. Without any hesitation, my dad took the offers immediately. And even when the interest rates were borderline usurious, I'm going to use the word usurious. That, this is in the Philippines, okay? Now, this decision eventually led to my dad's bankruptcy. But the good thing that came out of it was that he began taking time to seek for God. Difficulty can pressure us to make decisions impulsively, and so we must be very careful. Unlike David, let us not allow doubt to take over difficulty or when difficult situations arise. Rather, we need to stand in faith, pray, and trust God as we seek his guidance in leading him. The second factor I have is that compromise takes over calling. Now, David knew from the onset of his military victories and calling that he will soon be the king of Israel. He was anointed king by the prophet Samuel, and thus it was incumbent upon him to be confident of that calling. If you recall, as a shepherd, he was anointed by the prophet uh, Samuel at a tender age. He knows that. Even King Saul attests to that. Remember in last week's sermon, 1 Samuel chapter 24, 18 to 20, King Saul said this, you have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered, delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. David was assured by God of his destiny Yet even with those assurances from God that he will soon be the king of Israel, he compromised his calling by submitting in servitude to the enemy in exchange for what? Protection. In verse 5, he presents himself as a servant to King Achish when he approached him for a favor. Now David strikes a deal with Achish by asking for a separate place or territory where he could settle down with his men. Now, Achish thought to profit from this arrangement with David, since by providing David with a place in the south, he was made to believe that David will be raiding his own people. And this helped create a trust relationship between Achish and David. Achish now viewed David as a permanent servant or ally. So what do you think led him to compromise his calling by submitting in servitude to Achish? What blindsided David? He feared for his life. He must have thought to himself that men like Saul and Achish had total control or power to take away his life over God who made him a promise to be Israel's king someday. It is actually a faith issue for David. It is an issue of fear of man over fear of God that led him to compromise his true calling. The word of God has something to say about this. Here are a few verses I'd like to cite. Hebrews 13, 6 says, 
And so we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Jesus says this in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 to 5. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. John chapter 12, verse 42. John was talking about leaders in the synagogues uh, believing, who started believing in Christ. He says there, yet at the same time, many among the leaders believed in him, Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue for they loved human praise more than praise from God. And lastly, Proverbs 29, 25, this is the most explicit, I believe. Fear of man, it says there, will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Is this an issue for you? Do you struggle obeying God because you fear rejection from others? I'd like for you to reflect on this question. What situation leads you to compromise your faith and obedience in God over the fear of what people or friends would say or think about you? This is an important issue to address in our faith walk because sometimes we'd rather give in to what others would think or say about us than what God would ask of us. Let me say this. It is foolish for us to think that if we please men more than we please God, we are ultimately doing ourselves a favor. Think about that for a moment. Would you rather trust God and stand for your faith or go with the flow of popular worldly opinion of others? You know, the path to a fulfilling and victorious Christian life is not easy. It includes ridicule, persecution, trials, and challenges. No wonder Jesus calls it the narrow road. Well, most of you may have heard of my testimony. I testified uh, years back here on stage after my conversion to Christ, to the Christian faith, my wife and I, we underwent a painful stage of persecution from my parents. My dad would call me embarrassing names like my born against son. My aunt would call me Jesus freak. But you know, by God's grace, I would not be here right now had my wife and I caved into my parents' persecution. After 18 years of praying for them, they converted to biblical Christianity. And let me tell you what a blessing it is. When I went to the Philippines last month and preached in the church where I came from, my mom and my dad attended that service and afterwards they affirmed my calling. To God alone be the glory. Amen? Amen. The Greek word for church Ecclesia literally means called out once. We as believers are called to be ambassadors of the living God's love, grace, and mercy to the lost world. Being so, we are given the mandate to go and make disciples. That is our purpose statement. 
For us to do that effectively, we are supposed to be heralds of the gospel to those who still don't know and those who still don't have a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. You know, in my many years of experience leading small groups, I've realized that one of the most common struggles every believer has when it comes to the Great Commission mandate is their hesitancy to share the gospel for fear of rejection. In a PC culture that has pervaded our society, such type of fear becomes a common struggle for every believer because it is considered religious bigotry to claim that there is only one way to salvation, right? So what do we do? Do we become aggressive and start debating people or do we just close our mouths and not speak of the gospel at all? Absolutely not. You can start praying for your unsaved friends, relatives, or associates in your network. Have you been praying for your five? Remember a couple of months ago, we started that campaign to start praying for people in our network who still don't know Jesus? If you have, pray that an opportunity will open for you to share the gospel. But pastor, I don't know how to share the gospel. Well, I've got good news for you. This September, you can sign up in one of our Wednesday night disciple-making classes where you learn the simplest ways of sharing Jesus Christ to the lost. You may also join an ABF or a home group who are passionate about letting others know who Jesus is. I would gladly refer you to one if you're interested. The key here, however, is that it has to be out of your own volition. You have to have that willingness. Willingness. And that should be a good start. Third, the third factor is that deception takes over dilemma. Deception takes over dilemma. Now that David sought refuge under Achish, David is now in a dilemma. Since he is establishing this trust relationship with Achish, he needs to prove his loyalty to Achish by serving as a military ally or servant. Now in doing so, however, he needs to go against his own people, the Israelites. David is now a double agent. Could you imagine how huge this dilemma is for David? going against the people whom you will be leading as king someday. It's like going against your own blood, your own family. But if he doesn't do it, he will not win Achish's confidence and he'll probably be sent back to the land of Israel at best or worst, get killed by Achish and his army. What does David do? He resorts to deception. He made it appear to Achish that he was conducting raids in the south against tribes in the Judean territory. When David was asked whom he, he raided, he answered vaguely saying, Negev of Judah, Negev of Jeremiel, and the Negev of the Kenites. In any case, it sounded to King Achish that David was raiding his own people. Now to hide this deception, he made sure that every raid he conducted left no survivors to tell the truth. Achish now views David as a permanent ally 
And David, of course, wins his confidence and trust. What a smart thing to do for David, right? Well, not really. This further complicated David's situation, and now deeper trouble awaits him as the story progresses because he starts doing the wrong things the right way in his own eyes. He is about to face the consequences brought about by his deception. We will soon find out what that is. See, there's always something about deception or lying that entangles every person into more trouble ahead. When you start with a lie, you will have to fabricate more lies to cover up for the previous lies that you have made to save your face, right? Eventually, you get caught or entangled in your own web of lies. You know, recently we heard about this scandal on Ivy League college admissions where, where families were accused of falsifying their, their children's credentials just to get admitted to these prestigious schools. The go-between or the broker uh, already admitted to guilt. One family that was accused already confessed and admitted guilt, while another pleaded not guilty and will fight it out in court. I don't know if they're telling the truth, but if they are lying, they will have to lie some more to acquit themselves from the charges. And that makes them more vulnerable to conviction if evidences would suggest otherwise. And so perhaps it would be wise to ask, would you resort to deception when caught in a dilemma? Would you lie to have an easy way out of a tight situation or a problem? Would you lie for personal gain? There are consequences to deception or lying. We may not see it immediately, but sooner or later, it is going to catch up on us. And so after David had made those decisions, we now come to the point of knowing what the consequences would be. We can't call them foolish decisions unless we know how things turned out and what happens to him eventually. Now, as you read the story with me, an interesting turn of events happened that gets David caught up in a bigger dilemma. Let's now look into the consequences of David's decision and see how the story unfolds for David and his men. Let's move to the next chapter, which is 1 Samuel chapter 28, verses 1 to 2, the first two verses. It says there, In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. Akish said to David, You must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. David said, Then you will see for yourself what your servant can do. Akish replied, Very well. I will make you my bodyguard for life. David is now caught in the web of deception he created. Now he has to fight with, with and for Akish against his own people. He even had the audacity to brag and tell Akish that he will now witness how good a warrior he is. Akish now makes David his bodyguard for life. What a heavy consequence it is for him now to fight against Saul and the armies of Israel. Indeed, his foolish decision led him to this predicament. Wait until you see what happens next. In the next chapter, the Philistines would now march to war with David and his men 
toward Israel. And by this time, David must have been so anxious and regretful about this decision. I'm like hearing him say here, what in the world did I get myself into? Man, he must be praying so hard and mentally composing a psalm, asking God to save him from this huge dilemma. The story is full of twists and turns. And what happens next for David and his men comes as another surprise. Let me read for you the entire chapter of 1 Samuel 29. The Philistines gathered all their forces at Aphek and Israel camped by the spring in Jezreel. As the Philistine rulers marched with their units of hundreds and thousands, David and his men were marching at the rear with Achish. The commanders of the Philistines asked, what about these Hebrews? Achish replied, is this not David who was an officer of Saul, king of Israel? He has already been with me for over a year and from the day he left Saul until now, I have found no fault in him. But the Philistine commanders were angry with Achish and said, send the men back that he may return to the place you assigned him. He must not go with us into battle or he will turn against us during the fighting. How better could he regain his master's favor than by taking the heads of our own men? Isn't this the David they sang about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And so Achish called David and said to him, as surely as the Lord lives, you have been reliable and I would be pleased to have you serve with me in the army. From the day you came to me until today, I have found no fault in you, but the rulers don't approve of you. Now turn back and go in peace. Do nothing to displease the Philistine rulers. But what have I done? Asked David. What have you found against your servant from the day I came to you until now? Why can't I go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? Achish answered, I know that you have been as pleasing in my eyes as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the Philistine commanders have said, he must not go up with us into battle. Now get up early along with your master servants who have come with you and leave in the morning as soon as it is light. So David and his men got up early in the morning to go back to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. What happened there? Did you catch that? God turned things around for David's favor. All of a sudden, when they were already marching to war against Israel, Achish sends David back because the other leaders were suspicious of him. David even acted like he was not happy about the decision because his loyalty was being questioned. Good acting, right? God saves David from what is about to become a treasonous act against Israel that could nullify his calling to be its future king. The God who sees it all and knows all brought David this far and probably at his wit's end to make him realize that even in his foolishness, God is faithful. Now, I'm sure David must have breathed a sigh of relief, rejoicing and thanking God for how things have turned out. What a blessing, right? And so don't we all want to make wise decisions? Of course. However, let me remind you 
that we are not in control of the results that will arise from any big decision we will make. Someone is, he calls the shots. He can change minds and hearts of men. He can turn any situation for his favor and purpose. He is almighty and sovereign. He is unchangeable, unshakable, and unstoppable, and does as he pleases for his glory and the good of those who truly love him. And this story, brethren, proves that. Yes, the God who calls us to a loving relationship with him is in charge and holds the future. Amen? In closing, I'd like to offer you a few practical applications that I wrote down in regard to the passage. The first one is that hasty decisions or decisions made out of impulse usually result in failure and regret because it is highly influenced by our sinful nature. In David's case, it's fear and doubt. So seek God in prayer. Trust in his timing as you make decisions. Second, it is foolish for us to think, I said this, that if we please men more than we please God, we are ultimately doing ourselves a favor. As believers, our calling is to love God and others and be ambassadors of the gospel. So if you're hesitant to reach out to others about God's love and salvation, join a small group that is passionate on telling people about Jesus. Start praying for those in your network who still don't know Jesus and when the opportunity arises, Share the good news. Fear of rejection should never keep you from doing it. Third, situational dilemmas make decision-making tougher. We must never resort to deception just to get out of a tight situation. Be truthful in all of your dealings. Lying or deception will bring you more troubles ahead. And lastly, and I say this with full confidence, the best and wisest decision anyone can make in life is to have a loving relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. You know, we are not perfect. We can always falter. We are fallible. We make wrong decisions, bad decisions. In fact, you may be going through the consequences of some wrong decisions you've made in the past right now. However, if you have a loving relationship with God, just like David did, he will always be faithful in the end, even if you make foolish decisions. Amen? Amen. Romans 8.28, it says there, and we know that in all things, God works together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we can just come to you and seek your face. We thank you that you're a God of wisdom. We thank you that as we make decisions, we know, Father, you are in control and that, Lord, we believe that all things work together for us who believe in you and who love you. And thank you, Father, for learning from your word. Thank you that we can come to you always, we can seek you, and that in the days ahead, Father, you will continue to comfort us with your wisdom and guidance in our lives as we seek you. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Amen.